Hey everyone, this is Jason V, editor of Local Color. The following episode contains explicit language, sexual violence against children, and adult themes. The topics discussed may also serve as a trigger to some listeners and may not be suitable for all audiences. If you're the victim of sexual assault and need help, call 1-800-656-4673. People tell me I'm crazy to listen to the voices in my head, but when I started to listen to the voices in my head, my life changed and things got better. Hey everyone, I'm Jason V. This is Local Color, a show about the local color that makes Baltimore great. My guest today is a motivational speaker and self-published author, though her most important title might be Truth Speaker. People called Melanie Hill a liar most of her life because they didn't want to acknowledge their role in her abuse. We'll talk about why death was liberation for Melanie, her journey from sex worker to published author, and why organized religion just didn't work for her. Stay tuned. It was a cool day at Druid Lake Park when I met up with Melanie Hill. She wore a yellow shirt and olive green coat, and her dreads were pulled back. She asked if she could smoke before I started the interview. In doing research for the interview, I noticed a theme of mirrors in Melanie's work and imagery, so I asked her, what did your mirror reflect as a child? Most kids might see a snaggletooth smiling back at them. Melanie was not most kids. I didn't look in mirrors as a child. I don't even have pictures of me, really, from when I was a kid. Um, I grew up in a house where I was caught looking in a mirror. My mother would say to me, like, um, why in a mirror you're ugly? Nobody's ever going to love you. I'm my mother's spitting image, though. Like, I was her twin. And when people would tell her I looked like her, she would say, that little bitch don't look like me. Like, it was harsh, right? So I never really looked in the mirror a lot because I was never taught to see anything positive in the mirror. You may think her mother's words were harsh for young Melanie, but that was just the beginning. My stepfather was murdered in our home. My cousin's boyfriend kicked the door in in the middle of the night and he um, stabbed him in front of me, my mother, my sister, and my cousin. Even though that was a traumatic experience and it should have been something that was horrible, it was a blessing because my stepfather was abusive. Uh, for he had been abusing my mother and myself. He was physically, mentally, verbally abusive. Uh, having him out of my life has been a blessing. Melanie's stepfather had been killed because he had gotten into an argument with her cousin's boyfriend earlier in the day. The boyfriend got high and later that night kicked in their door and had his final say. With her stepdad's premature death, you'd think that was the end of Melanie's torment. The abuse continued because my mother had become uh, abused. She had become conditioned. When he passed, she picked up his abuse, and she was now the verbal, mental, uh, not physical abuser, but she allowed her best friend to molest me for years. And I say allow because I wanted to think my mother didn't know, but when I finally did tell her, like, she didn't believe me, she laughed at me. When somebody made her take it to court, she... Um, told the judge I was a liar and that he would never do that to me and then continued to invite him to the house. Like, it was like a game to her, you know? For years, Melanie was never safe in her own home. Melanie also had a sister whom the mother's friend tried to molest, but was spared. Why her sister was spared, we'll explain later. Shortly after her stepdad's murder, Melanie blacked out at school. 
as she recalled to me the first time she blacked out, an ice cream truck was driving by the park. Um, I just, I don't know, I woke up on the floor. I woke up on the floor and the teacher was standing over top of me and I couldn't remember anything or why I was down there or what had happened. And I didn't know how to get home. I didn't even know, you know, where I lived at. And I remember standing outside of the school for a long time and one of my classmates' mothers, she didn't have the money to get on a bus with her and her daughter and me. So she walked me all the way home. And my mother beat me when I got there. It wouldn't be the last time Melanie blacked out or her mother acting out. As a child, Melanie's family moved around a lot, not because her parents were in the military, but because of her mother's continued transgressions. My mother was a troublemaker in every neighborhood we went, but she told everybody it was me. Seriously, she used to tell people, uh, well, we got to move because, you know, Melanie stands so many fights, but she wouldn't tell them why girls were constantly trying to jump me or why I was always in trouble, which was my mother was sleeping with everybody's father, everybody's boyfriend. Um, I stayed in a lot of trouble with the neighborhood girls because I was labeled like my mother. The cycle of abuse, unaccountability, and neglect would continue for Melanie until her teens. When she was 14, Melanie's grandmother told her her mother was sick with HIV. Oftentimes, the heart softens as death approaches. We forget things said, and the bad times take a back seat to the good times. When I asked Melanie about her relationship with her mother after the diagnosis... It probably got worse for us as um, she got sick, because even with HIV, my mother was this manipulative woman. She found a man to love her to spend the last four years almost of her life with her and I didn't get along with his daughter. So she would pack up the other kids and be gone on the weekend when I came home from school. They would go over there for the whole summer. My sister even says when we lived there and I'm like, when the fuck did y'all live there? Like, Cause I still was at the house by myself all the time. <laughs> right. It was tough to hear Melanie laugh about her crumbling relationship, but some things we laugh about to keep distant. My mother died when I was 17 and she died without knowing when I was 17, I found out I had herpes. And I couldn't talk to her because she was never a mother. You know, we couldn't even talk. Like, she had never had normal conversations with me that she should have had. And so I had to deal with that by myself as I was losing my mother and all that. Before Melanie's mother died, she tried to reconcile with her daughter. She tried to call me. She called me on her deathbed. I'm the last person she spoke to. She called me. She tried to apologize, tell me she loved me and all that, looking for forgiveness. I didn't give it to her. I let her die without it. And was that a conscious decision that you made, or was it just, you know, in the moment you decided you don't, you don't get that from me? Um, knowing me, it was conscious. I've always been methodical. Uh, I was raised by a manipulator, so. Melanie wouldn't forgive her mother until years later. She realized the abuse she suffered was fallout from the abuse her mother faced at the hands of Melanie's stepfather. Looking back on it, Melanie doesn't necessarily regret how she treated her mother, but wishes she had a good mother to begin with. It would have saved her from her mother's friend who molested her, and maybe would have saved her from the abuse yet to come. Looking back, do you wish that you know, she was more motherly, or do you feel like it allowed you to develop a more realistic um, viewpoint of the world? Oh, I surely wish she was more motherly. I wish I had a mother. Um, it's one of the biggest uh, detriments to my life, I think, is that I didn't have a mother. At 30, I learned how to start doing my hair and makeup and stuff like that. I was 30 years old. I was molested and raped and dealt in bad relationships my whole life because I never had a mother 
to step in, to teach me, to talk to me, you know, nothing. Yeah, I wish I had a mother. What's even worse is that when my mother died, I moved in with my father and my stepmother, and my stepmother was damn near as bad. So where was your father when all this was happening between you and your mother up until she passed away? Busy raising my stepmother kids. <laughs> right across town, you know. Every time I told him what was going on, he just didn't believe me because my mother was that good of a manipulator, you know. Maybe a year ago we had the last talk and he breaks down hearing about the shit that happened to me. But I'm like, man, I lived through this shit. I kept trying to tell you then. Like, even when I moved into your house, you let your wife call me that crazy bitch for the first year I lived here. Like, your wife has been horrible to me. Like, I leave your house crying and shit. They all fucked up. They won't even acknowledge my mental illness or anything because they don't want to acknowledge that they had any part in it. They rather just say I'm I'm the, the one that's hard to deal with or some shit like that. I'm not hard to deal with. I make y'all deal with reality and y'all don't want to deal with reality. You know, y'all like to live in y'all little bubble like y'all life was sweet and y'all didn't do fucked up shit and y'all didn't let this little girl be abused and molested and she didn't call and tell you what was going on and she didn't ask you a million times to come live with you. You can pretend it didn't happen, but it did. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Melanie explains why at 16, she thought it was normal to sell her body. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. My guest is Melanie Hill. Before the break, I talked with Melanie about the abuse she faced from her mother and stepfather, and how her mother's friend molested her for a long time. When Melanie was 17, her mother died from HIV. Melanie stayed briefly with her father, who was divorced from her mother, and suffered more abuse from her father's wife, Melanie's stepmother. To make matters worse, Melanie had siblings. The worst comes from how they were treated compared to Melanie. My mother had three kids. I'm the oldest. My father has two kids. I'm the youngest. So where were your, uh, your two other siblings growing up? In the house being treated fine. I'm the only one that got abused. My sister was a part of my torment. My mother taught my younger sister how to call me whores and bitches early and to search my stuff when I wasn't home. And uh, she was a part of it with my mother. My younger brother, he was so young that, you know, he was never a part of anything. In fact, he doesn't even know us because after she died, he ended up in the Children Protective Services and was adopted and he was five years old. He don't even know us. Melanie left her abusive relationships behind, but with no one to turn to for help, she had to fend for herself. Life as a teenager on the streets leaves few options, and Melanie turned to prostitution to survive. Most teenage girls not forced into prostitution would approach it with trepidation. Melanie, however, saw sex work as normalized. It was very normal because I had been being molested since I was seven or eight, and her best friend had been paying me. So I guess it was normal because if you look at it in that way, I've been a sex worker since I was like eight years old. To her, it was just another job, even when she had her day job at Wendy's. I was still turning tricks on the side because I still needed to eat. Turning tricks meant Melanie could survive, and at 19, it wasn't just about her anymore. I became a mother at 19, so I had a kid to take care of. But um, never looked at it as this is life or this is what I should be doing or this is what I want to do. I've always been better than that. Um, it's just always been a way to make sure I was taken care of. As Melanie reached her 20s, she landed jobs working in what she calls corporate America. 
I worked in schools, the prison system, um, for-profit schools. I never worked regular jobs like retail and that kind of thing. So in 2004, um, I left Southern. Southern High School became Digital Harbor. And I was at Southern and Digital Harbor. And then I was no longer um, needed at Digital Harbor. I couldn't find employment for a while. And I went down to like, I think I did the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and food uh, licensing and that kind of thing. Melanie found steady work, but she wasn't happy. I started looking for something else. And at one point, a guy that um, I had met him in the ad, I had met him through an ad in the paper because I was modeling on the side. The internet had just started like getting popular. It wasn't doing much back then, but I had did like two or three websites and stuff. And so I put an ad. Well, I seen an ad in the paper, and the guy was like, um, he was looking for models. But when I met up with him, he was looking for dancers. And I'm like, well, I can't dance at all. And he was like, well, I really don't need dancers. I need girls that you know is gonna fucking suck at my parties. And I was like, oh, I do that. Though Melanie was familiar with that line of work, she didn't feel good about being in a party setting. She was used to one-on-one interactions where the potential for danger was lower. She put the offer off for months and continued working her 9-to-5. Eventually, in December of 2004, I was no longer working, and it was a day where I was down to my last $3, and I had to decide if I was going to buy a pack of cigarettes because I was smoking back then or if I was going to save it for bus fare so I could go to social service on Monday and beg for money, because it was a Friday. And so I went to uh, the phone booth, because my phone was turned off. I went to the phone booth, and I called my uh, parents' house. And my stepbrother was like, some guy called here, and he um, left his number for you. And so I called him back, and you know it was the guy from the parties. And I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to do it. Right. And I did. And I think I only made like $100, $150 that night. But it was more than I had. And so I went back the next week, and that's kind of how I ended up doing these parties and stuff. Melanie fell back into sex work. She was making money, but wasn't entirely clear who she was working for. I didn't know the guy was a pimp. Like, I didn't know him, and I wasn't looking for one. He never tried to pimp me or to hook up with me outside of these parties. But... Um, some of these girls he was pimping and they were young girls like there was a girl I met her my first night and she was beautiful like she really was and she had like a really developed body and you know we had a lot of fun the first night we made a lot of money together and I went back maybe the second weekend and the same thing the third weekend everybody was all excited and I'm like what is everybody all excited about and it was like her birthday coming up and I'm like, oh, so she having a party. They're like, yeah, I'm like, how old is she turning? They're like, 18. I had no clue she was a baby. And I'm like, fuck me. I was like 24, maybe 25 at that point. And I've been having sex with this little girl. You know, I had been doing shows with this little girl. Melanie knew she had to do something or watch the young girl get devoured by the streets. I actually ended up pulling her out of there because she lived there and he was pimping her. I pulled her out of there. But a lot of the girls were like that. They were young girls that had ran away from home. He would find them on the street, or they had uh, young girls that had multiple kids and couldn't really make money. They would show up just on the weekend. Yeah, It was horrible. I stayed for about six months. After helping the young girl leave the party life... I went straight again, went back to corporate America, went to a, a for-profit medical school, um, was there for two and a half years. 
Things were going well for Melanie, but a magazine cover called to her, appealing to old dreams. I saw the June uh, 2006 cover of Playboy, and it was uh, the girls of MySpace. And I said, what the fuck are you talking about? While Melanie was making ends meet as a sex worker and party girl, MySpace exploded. In 2006, MySpace had over 100 million users, and in 2008, just before Facebook took over, MySpace had generated $800 million in revenue. It was the first successful social media site, and with success came opportunity. My whole dream, my whole life had been like to be in Playboy, and it's like all of a sudden all you gotta do is get on this social media shit. Like, what is this, right? This was MySpace was just coming around, like it's 2006, you know? And so I was like, I can make a MySpace account. I can do that. And so I put up some old pictures that one of my friends had taken, uh, taken years ago. And it ended up with me, you know, taking it further. Social media allowed Melanie a safe way to pursue her dreams of being a model. No parties, no underage girls. Melanie wasn't on MySpace to make money. Just post some pics and feel that rush of endorphins when someone likes her comments. But MySpace led Melanie to a place where she could make money. I started playing around like on my webcam, like on Yahoo Messenger and stuff, you know, and I'm just showing off to my followers. And then one of my followers said to me, well, you know, Queen, you can make money doing what you do online. And I was like, how? We're going to take another break. And when we return, I continue my conversation with Melanie Hill. I'm Jason Vance Like This is Local Color. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. Growing up, my guest Melanie Hill experienced and saw things that hardened her heart at an early age. As a teen, she was a sex worker, continuing that work off and on through the birth of her son and the ups and downs of the economy. Before the break, Melanie talked about modeling on MySpace. She had fans, and one of them told her she could make money doing what she did for free. And he was like, there are websites like uh, Rude.com, and you can go over there, and you can do this on web on your webcam there, uh, Rude.com. And I'm like, all right. So I went over there and um, set up a page, started doing webcam shows, started making decent money. Like I was like, oh, okay, so I can make money at home. Melanie started work in the adult industry again, but this time it was legal and on her own terms. She'd get contracted out by different companies for content, mostly fetish stuff like face-sitting and bondage, and some girl-on-girl stuff every now and again like wrestling. Melanie said she liked the fetish stuff better than parties, too. You could set your own fees, and many times people were willing to pay. By now, Melanie was well into her 20s. She noticed she blacked out a lot. It's always been a part of my life. I think I just tried to ignore it. Like, you know how I'll just say, well, I was tired. I must have just, you know, or maybe I got too high or, you know, I must have drank too much. But I'm not a heavy drinker. I've never been a heavy drinker. So I used to give myself excuses for why I couldn't remember something. It, It took a long time for me to acknowledge that there was something going on with me. In addition to the blackout, Melanie admits she always felt like there was more than one of her. I found diaries back when I was like 14, 15, where they were writing in their names, different handwritings than myself. Uh, what were their names? Back then it was just Kat and Missy that was in my journals. Melanie knew the blackouts and the other Melanies had to be related. She knew she had to get into therapy. I went to therapy because I felt like I was a threat to society. 
it got to a point where I was really getting popular um, for the adult entertainment thing. I'm all over the internet doing things naked and sexual, and men got really comfortable walking up to me on the streets of Baltimore saying things to me or trying to touch me. And it got to a point where first I was intimidated, but then I started carrying my knife in my pocket. Then I started carrying my knife on my hip. Then I started carrying my knife in my hand. By the time I was walking the streets of Baltimore with my blade extended, ready to kill the next person who touched me the wrong way, approached me the wrong way, I knew I needed help. So I went to my um, doctors one day and I asked them, where can I get mental health therapy? And they sit down the hall. And so I literally walked in and I said, I think I need to see somebody because if I don't, I'm going to kill somebody. And so they gave me an appointment for the next day, and I spent the next seven and a half years in therapy, one to three days a week. In therapy, Melanie uncovered many revelations about herself and the blackouts. I found out that I had DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder, which is multiple personalities. You know, I started to talk to, like, my sister about it. My sister said, well, you know, Cat lived with us for a long time. And I said, what you mean Cat lived with us? She said, girl, you was gone. Like, Cat lived with us for like a year, and I knew about Missy. And I'm like, so you knew that I wasn't always me. My sister said I always used to go in and out. But see, like, I wouldn't remember. But there are, like, points in my life that I just don't know anything about. Like, I mean, years that's blacked out, uh, high school, most of that is gone, uh, neighborhoods we've lived in. There are people who walk up to me and know me, and I have no clue who they are. I mean, just from friends to people I've had sex with, I don't know them. And when I have, like, uh, it's called a, a, a fugue state. When I go into a fugue state... I become one of them and I'm not necessarily myself. Like, it's weird. I can be extremely tired and I'll be like, I'm going to bed. It'll be 12 o'clock. At 2 o'clock, you'll see me up on the internet posting away like crazy and you'll think, oh, she's up. It's not me. I might have laid down, but the body got back up, but it wasn't me. As she mentioned, Melanie was diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder. It's a powerful coping mechanism the mind uses to block out bad memories and traumatic events. She was also diagnosed with PTSD and is clinically emotionally disabled. I asked Melanie how she approaches and lives life with everything that happened to her. I think the only special precautions I take are to protect myself sexually from being raped or assaulted again. I don't let strange men spend time around me. I don't let anyone that I'm not already sexual with and that I trust spend time at my house at night like because I, just, I drift off that night and if I drift off, I wake up a different me. I know that the more sexual side of me wakes up and men take advantage of that. So you can't hang at my house at nighttime. Um, I don't go out much at night. I don't trust that I won't meet somebody. Like There's a very, very sexual side of me that I try very hard to suppress. I've never been violent and I've never gotten into trouble, but I always end up doing things that I wish I wouldn't have. So I really, I don't let myself go out at night. I don't let men come over my house at night. I really just stay to myself. I, I really, I don't have friends. I'm a loner. I, I don't give people the, the space to get to me or to trigger me. And, but do you ever feel like sometimes that could be a bad thing? Or do you just always, you always have to stand, you know, at arm's length or be apart? I don't know. See, like, recently I joined the Impact Hub so I could try to be around people but not have to 
be around people because it's a big enough space for me to find my little corner to be in, but still to be a little social. I'm trying to work on integrating myself back into like normal society because I don't like being uh, in solitary confinement, which I put myself in, but it feels safe. It feels safe. At the same time, my goals are too big to be safe. So um, it's hard for me to try to interact with people in a normal way. Because at first thought, I don't even know what normal is. And then I never know when I'm just going to switch up. As Melanie went through therapy, she also became more religious and started attending church. The year she started going had been a tough one. In 2010, I got really sick. I was really sick. Like, I couldn't tell you what was going on with me, but it's like my whole body was breaking down. Mentally, I was breaking down, and I lost mobility in my right arm for a while. Um, and then my back went out on me. I had to have outpatient surgery 10 times in 2010. And I knew that I was done. I didn't want to do the things I was doing no more. I couldn't live the life I was living no more. My body had broken down to tell me that I was done. I lost everything that year. 2010 was a year of loss. I lost everything. I lost my home. I lost my ability to function physically. I lost uh, money. And I ended up moving into a boarding house on North Avenue. And I was the only female living in a house with five males, right? And I couldn't work. And so here I am, I'm behind on my rent in a one-room boarding house, you know? And I filed for disability. And I keep telling my landlord, like, I'm going to get my disability. I'm going to get it. Just give me a second. Get, hold on, hold on. In December of, um, it's weird, in August of 2010, my son went to uh, a vacation Bible camp at a, at a church. And it's weird. Even though I had been a whore my whole life, my best friend was a minister. I met him back when I was working at Southern. He took my son to this vacation Bible school, and my son started going after the, the summer camp ended, he kept going to church. And I kind of was going with him, and I felt like the Spirit was talking to me in church, like something was talking to me. And this is when I was at my worst, and I'm breaking down, and I'm losing everything, and there's this something trying to talk to me. And so I said, um, I'm going to file for my disability, and if I can get my disability, I'll quit this shit. Like, I'm not going back to doing uh, no more sex on the Internet, none of that, like, everything. I'll just chill. And so in December of 2010, my first check came. I got a letter saying I was approved. I got like a check for like $5,000 in the mail, like was able to pay my rent off and everything. And after that, I said, I'm never going back to, you know, sucking dick and all that stuff on the internet. But I didn't stop doing uh, like masturbation stuff. At the same time, um, I kept following what I thought was God through Christianity. And I felt like, there was something trying to talk to me and lead me, but something was wrong. And so I stayed into the church because my best friend was the pastor there. So I stayed there. My son was comfortable there, but I wasn't, and my spirit wasn't comfortable there. And so you know how the universe tries to tell you something and you don't listen? And the universe wanted me to move out of that church, but I wouldn't listen because I thought this is where I, I'm supposed to be because everybody I love is happy here, you know. And so what it did to get me out was it put the, the something that would, would oppose my energy in, in charge of the church. And so there was now a new pastor. 
and he was evil. He's still there. He's evil. Melanie stopped going to the church in East Baltimore and spent more time in nature and with the universe. Nature became my, my spiritual um, place of worship. I, I found a personal connection with whatever my creator is, and the universe has become my guide. And I feel like um, people tell me I'm crazy to listen to the voices in my head, but when I started to listen to the voices in my head, my life changed. I had to leave organized religion to find peace and spirituality, and um, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. I, I've never been so happy. We're going to take one final break, and when we come back, the conclusion of my interview with Melanie Hill. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone. I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. My guest is Melanie Hill, and to say she's been to hell and back wouldn't do her struggles and hardship justice. She survived domestic abuse at a young age, was raped, and was a sex worker as a teenager. She held down a few normal jobs, but she always had a foot in the sex world. Melanie managed to get off the street and did webcam work for fetish sites, where she made her own hours and made good money. Her reputation, however, led to men approaching her on the street, making Melanie more and more uncomfortable and paranoid. She started carrying a knife and felt like she was a danger to the world. In her 20s, Melanie begged the city of Baltimore to get her into therapy because, in her words, she felt like she was going to kill someone. In therapy, she learned she had dissociative identity disorder and PTSD. The therapy helped her recognize why she had periods of blacking out and not remembering spans of her life. Before getting into therapy and stopping sex work completely, at 19, she had her son. I asked Melanie if her son knew about her work growing up. My son was shielded from everything I did till he was about maybe 13 or 14. And by then, I wasn't doing it anymore, but, you know, the Internet is unforgiving. So, yeah, he found out, but he didn't know while I was in that process of doing those things. He stayed with my uh, stepmother and my father most of the time. I let him sleep wherever he's happy, as long as he know where home is. That's all that matters. Melanie was always worried her parents would try to poison her son against her. Still think it. Like, I don't care how much they tell me they not. Like, I don't trust them. I, I, you know, I, I love them because they take care of my son, and I tell them all the time, like, I do. I love them because without them, I don't know how my son would be where he is right now. Trust them? Mm-mm. <laughs> I trust that he, they would never hurt him. They love my son. They love my son like they his own, like they he their own child. Trust them with me. Trust them to not hurt me. Trust them with my feelings. Trust them with my secrets. Nah, I don't trust my parents. Now in her 30s, Melanie uses her past experiences and trauma to empower others. Her business, Stronger Than My Struggles, is a testament to her strength and resilience. To date, she's published three print books, four e-books. All three of my print books are even in Barnes & Noble. What was your self-publishing journey like? My publishing journey was, it was really slow at first because I had these books. I had these ideas, and the first book was done, but I had all these ideas, and I knew I should be publishing books because I had been blogging forever. I've been writing forever. I have collections of all kinds of different types of writing, and I knew that I should be putting them together in a book. Melanie had a lot of content to get out. She just didn't know how. In her searching, she learned about and attended a workshop, Publish Your Book in 30 Days. And she wasn't really trying to teach you how to publish your book in 30 days. She was trying to get you to sign up for her $3,000 program where she would make you a self-published author in 30 days where she would publish your book and you would be under her and you had to buy all your books from her. And she would, it was like, almost like a pyramid scheme. Oh, right, scam. right.
right, right. And actually, I met one of the women outside of that who has spent $3,000 with her. And, and uh, right. So I walked out of there like, no, I can't get this woman $3,000. But because of who I am and how far along in the process I already was, I was like, I can publish my books now. Now I learned what I really need to do. So I did. And um, once I figured out how easy it was in the journey um, from taking it from Word to actually getting published books in your hand and how cheap it could be, uh, I said, oh, let me do it again. And so within 45 days, I published two books. And then I turned around and did another one two months later. And now I'm teaching other people to do it because it's really a lot simple than people make it out to be. And you can do it on any budget you want to do it on. People think you have to have a bunch of money. And I think that now that I've learned that, I'm going to start a publishing company. But now I'm constantly publishing books. Like I just published another ebook last week because I don't even have to publish through Amazon. I've learned how to publish ebooks and sell them through my own website. Like I can publish an ebook every two weeks if I want. If I sit down and write, I'm like, now that I've learned the process, it's one of the easiest things in the world, like tying my shoe. Self-publishing is a way to cut out the middleman and get your content straight into the hands of your audience. A big bonus to doing things yourself is... Are you able to retain all of the profits? Yeah. <laughs> you also do motivational speaking, is that right? Definitely. With all of that, the writing, the speaking, um, and in general just being open about you know your herpes diagnosis and everything that's happened to you, do you use that as a... Um, what's the word that I'm looking for... Like, do you use that as a point of strength for you? Do, do Are you open because it allows you to heal? Do you just leave it in the past and say, that happened to a different version of Melanie, this is Melanie? Oh, no, it happened to me. It happened to this me. I live with it every day. I still deal with the trauma. I um, still break down regularly. I'm triggered on a regular. Um, what I do use it to do is to show other people that no matter what happened, you can still have success. You can still have happiness. You can still um, be the you you were before they tried to ruin you. Life will ruin you. And people think that because all of these things have happened, you don't get to start over. But you do. And it doesn't matter if people see you differently as long as you're different people told me in 2010 when I said I'm not going to suck dick on the internet anymore they said well you're done you know you're not really pretty you ain't got nothing going on for yourself you ain't got a body but see they never wanted to acknowledge how smart I was to begin with so if you never acknowledge what else I had going on to begin with then and that's all you see in me then you think well if she's not doing that that's all she is and people said that to me and some people would be weak and be like that's all I am that's all I'm worth but I was never that and I always knew that. I always knew that everything I do has just been a means of survival. Like, it's never been, this is what I am. It's, this is what's going to bring money in. And so now, for the first time, I get to, like, be myself. Melanie's journey led her to a picnic table at Druid Lake Park. She was able to turn herself into a successful and productive member of society when everyone around her wanted to count her out. As a black woman, she has seen firsthand the shortcomings of the black community and the horrors those shortcomings breed. We have a problem with justifying wrong behavior in our community. Like we just we assume that because we've seen it, it's normal. They say, well, that's how it's always been, or that's what I saw growing up, or that's what happened to me. And you can't justify things that are wrong by saying, well, it's the way it's always been. If that was the case, we'd still be slaves. You know, you have to fix a wrong, you, especially when it's a generational wrong. 
When asked about her future, Melanie's vision was clear. I'm going to start my publishing company because I just made five people publish authors. And so now I'm going to do an actual publishing company in January, probably. Stronger than my struggles, it's going to continue to support the community. We have a free weekly therapeutic writing class, and um, we're now sponsoring Poets for Dinner Monthly. And... Uh, we're partnering up with different people in the community to try to bring health and wellness initiatives. And so um, we're going to continue to do that. I'm going to continue to help small businesses and entrepreneurs, especially people who have been through hard transitions, who come from the street, who've been abused. It's not easy working with people like us. And people will get frustrated and fed up trying to work with people like us. And people think, well, I'm not going to get it done I do coaching programs to help you get it done on a pace where you understand and you can feel comfortable because I'm like you. I need time too sometimes. I need space. I need somebody to listen to me even though I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm just not feeling it today. And I understand what that's like. How can people contact you if they want to learn more? Uh, they can go to StrongerThanMyStruggles.com. I'm on all social media StrongerThanMyStruggles as well. Okay. Is there anything else that you want to talk about we haven't already gone over? I want to say thank you. I've been doing this in Baltimore for 11 years as an entrepreneur, not necessarily this business, but I, I don't get much Baltimore uh, attention because I'm not doing what's normal in Baltimore and I don't follow the normal crowds. We're kind of clickish here. So I can appreciate you um, not following the lead and it's just stepping outside of what's normal. Today's episode of Local Color was written, produced, narrated, edited, and published by me, Jason V. Follow Local Color on Instagram at Local Color Podcast. You can also like Local Color on Facebook. Head to Local Color's website, localcolorpodcast.com, where you can listen to the entire catalog. Also, please subscribe to Local Color on iTunes to get those push notifications when new episodes drop. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason V, and I'll be back with more Local Color.